Okay, I know many times we have covered some of the material we're going to look at again tonight, particularly on the formation of the New Testament canon. However, tonight we're going to give special focus to the relationship between the Gospels, between the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, relative to John's Gospel, and how they came to be in the form that we have them today. Their history of transmission from their original writing until the canonization process, and indeed the identification of the authors of each. I have two handouts for you. The first one is entitled, The Relationship Between Mark, Matthew, and Luke. It's the, what's called the Synoptic Problem. And we'll come to that pretty quickly. And then we have another chart entitled, A Graphic Illustration of the Utilization and Distribution of Mark and Q in Matthew and Luke. Now some of you know what Q was, but I'll re-explain that again tonight. Let's begin first with a little bit of overview concerning our sources for the Gospels. Um, remember, we've talked about this at length in a prior study. There are three forms of manuscripts. There are the papyri, there are the uncials, and there are the minuscules. The papyri are among the earliest manuscripts. They are written on papyrus leaves or papyrus sheets, much like an early form of paper. Uh, uncials are sometimes made out of papyrus, but are usually made out of parchment. And they reflect the largest percentage of our earliest. And then the minuscules, also made out of parchment, but are different from the uncials in the way in which they are written. Uncials means all capitals, whereas minuscules, minuscules have upper and lower case letters. Now, in the evolution of manuscripts and of writing, in the development of uncials, you have a high regularity in the width and the height of the letters, and they take up space, uh, significant space. All caps generally do that. The minuscules, using upper and lower case, allowed for the compression and the placement of more letters, and hence more words and more material, on each page. Minuscules are usually made out of parchment, and uh, sometimes also early paper. And um, hence, in that way, they are similar to most of the uncials. Uncials are also out of parchment, but also papyri. All right. The papyri is the earliest form of the manuscripts that we have, dating from our earliest fragments of the New Testament starting uh, depending upon who you ask. But let's go with the Gospels. I tend to um, agree that some of the papyrus manuscripts that we have 
actually date a whole lot older than the general dating procedures. However, let's go ahead tonight and use the standard dating procedures. In the papyri, there are 21 manuscripts that have Matthew in great fragmentation form. No single papyrus manuscript completely contains Matthew. Mark, we have a little bit better situation and we have one manuscript that has a substantial percentage of chapters 4 through 9 and chapter 11 and 12. That's papyrus 45. We also have a couple of other papyrus manuscripts that have a bit of it. Luke is significant. Papyrus 75 contains a large percentage of Luke. Chapters 3 through 10 fragmented, 11 through 16 complete, and uh, 17, 18, and 22 fragmented, and 23 and 24 complete. Hence, a substantial percentage of Luke is found in Papyrus 75. Another substantial percentage is found in Papyrus 45, and in Papyrus 4, we have chapters 1 through 6 partially intact. John is a significant amount of papyrus renderings as well. It looks like there's about 22 or 20, 20 or 22 manuscripts here, but especially P66, which is substantially intact, almost completely intact, from chapter 1 through chapter 13, and then partially intact from chapters 14 to the end, chapter 21. Uh, P75 is very similar. It's entirely intact for the first four chapters, then partially intact through chapter 15. There are a whole bunch of other uh, papyrus fragments of small sections of a couple of chapters to just little fragments of a few lines. These manuscripts date, these papyrus manuscripts date from the very earliest of them, which is also probably one of the earliest fragments of the New Testament that we have, and using the traditional dating uh, would be no, no uh, later than 125 AD, all the way until the end of the papyrus period in the 7th century AD. All right? So, essentially, a 650-year period in which the New Testament was copied on papyrus manuscripts and handed down from copy generation to copy generation. Many of the manuscripts that are in the papyrus collections are individual works. They're not the product of scriptoria, of trained copyists, but of priests and monks who are doing this for their own uses. We have some papyrus manuscripts that are in fantastic condition, reflecting extreme precision on the part of the copyist, the scribe. We have other manuscripts that are not nearly as faithful to their exemplar and take great liberty in the choice sometimes of word order and everything in between. Generally speaking, there are three versions. There's the strict text, there's the common or normal text, and then there's free text. And that's exactly what it sounds like. Strict is a very strict rendering of the original that the copyist had. Normal provides a little bit of variation 
maybe some correction if the scribe thought there was an error. Free was very willing to simply range far and wide in terms of interpretation and additions and subtractions. Unsealed manuscripts start showing up per se in the third century, in the 200s AD, and run all the way through until the 12th century. This includes some of the greatest manuscripts and most important manuscripts, the uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus manuscripts. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And as we've studied in the past, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are the earliest, most complete copies of the New Testament that we have, and they date to the 300s A.D. Vaticanus is probably a little earlier, whereas Sinaiticus is probably a little later, but all in the 4th century or the 300s A.D. 300, probably 300 to 350 A.D. All right. The minuscules start showing up around the 10th century and go until the 17th century, long after the invention of the printing press. The vast majority of our New Testament manuscripts are minuscules because they are later, hence they survived longer. We have a large number of uncials reflecting the vast majority, in fact the entirety of the New Testament, particularly in Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, and in papyri manuscript we only have fragmented copies. Our best preserved portion of the New Testament in the papyrus manuscripts are Paul's letters, as well as Luke and John in different manuscript collections. For the Gospels, really and truly, with the exception of Luke and John and fragments of Matthew and Mark, our best and earliest copies are really Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. That doesn't mean that if it's printed in Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, that's how it had to have been in the original. All it means is that our best complete copies, in fact, our earliest complete copies, are Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Our earliest fragmented copies are papyri dating to about 200 to 250 AD in terms of when they were copied down. Some of them are actually a little later but reflect an earlier uh, manuscript tradition. The Gospels are among the best preserved portion of the New Testament, especially in the uncial tradition. It wasn't until Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, however, that the four Gospels can be found frequently printed together with anything else in the New Testament. Frequently speaking, you would have a volume with the Gospels, and then a volume with the Epistles, and a volume with Revelation and the other materials, other writings, church fathers, and what have you. Then when it comes to the papyrus manuscripts, it's rare that you have anything more than one book in any one papyrus manuscript. 
with a few exceptions. P75, P45, those are examples. Uh, papyrus manuscripts with more than one gospel, hence those manuscripts were probably indeed a four-gospel collection and among the earliest. Early on in the New Testament, the Gospels circulated in groups first within regions independently and then later they circulated as a group, the four Gospels. We'll talk about how that happened in a bit. Right now, I want to focus on the question before us, which is the formation of these Gospels as works of literature, as Gospels themselves. Where did Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John come from? Who wrote them? When were they written? Why were they written? How were they written? These are good questions. At first, it sounds like an interesting and actually silly question to ask who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John broke Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Well, there is a question, there is debate as to who wrote these Gospels. If you look at the earliest copies, the manuscript copies of these Gospels, they do not always identify the author of the book. The Gospels themselves, within the body text of the Gospels themselves, do not claim to be written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although John has the most hints because of the references to the beloved disciple while John himself is missing. And many scholars believe that is a veiled indication, not so veiled actually, that John wrote it. He just didn't refer to himself. Instead, he called himself the beloved disciple, the beloved disciple of Jesus. And of course, his followers then would have picked up on that characteristic of reference. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke nowhere claim to have been written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now you might say, well, I look in my Bible and it says written by Matthew. That's an editor's remark. And you can go back for centuries in Bibles and see editorial remarks concerning the authorship of each of the Gospels. But if you go back thousands of years, back 2,000 years to the, uh, or 1,800 years to the earliest copies that we have of these Gospels, they make no explicit claims about who the author or authors were. Indeed, to find out who wrote these Gospels, you have to go back into the writings of the Church Fathers, to Origen and Eusebius, to important Church historians, of the first centuries of the church, and behind them to an early bishop, a fellow by the name of Papias. So let's turn to the first handout that I gave you today, the relationship between Matthew or between Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And if you look down at the bottom of the chart, and we'll look at this material that takes up most of it in a minute, but look down at the bottom and you see the paragraph. Up until about 125 A.D., the Gospels were generally not attributed to any author. In about 125 A.D., however, Bishop Papias of Heriopolis, a city in Asia Minor, wrote a book in which the identity of each Gospel's author is given. About the Gospel of Mark, he wrote that John Mark was the secretary of St. Peter during the Apostles' last years, 
and that he wrote down his gospel based upon Peter's teachings. Papias wrote concerning St. Matthew that he had written down the teachings of Jesus in Aramaic and that St. Luke had spoken with Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as several other disciples prior to writing his gospel. Concerning Matthew's gospel, the problem we have is that it is clear to most scholars, myself included, that the gospel traditionally attributed to him was not originally written in Aramaic, but in Greek. Remember, Papias said that it was written in Aramaic. Well, the Gospel of Matthew that we have in our New Testaments, the Greek version of it is the original version of it. It was not written in Aramaic and translated into Greek. It's not translated Greek. That's very clear. It is Greek that is original Greek. Hence, it was written in Greek. It is also clear that the author of Matthew used Mark and a source which contained the collected sayings of Jesus. Likewise, regarding Luke, the Syrian-born physician appears to have used Mark and the same, same source as Matthew in the writing of his gospel. An investigation and reconstruction of this saying's source has revealed that it was originally drafted in Aramaic and only later translated into Greek. Hence, some scholars myself included, have now come to conclude that Papias was referencing not the canonical Gospel of Matthew that we have in our Bibles today, but rather the saying source which is common to both Luke and the canonical Matthew. This fits with some of the other details in Papias' writing about his work, including his referencing it not as a Gospel, but rather as a collection of the sayings or logiae of Jesus or of the Master. Well, what did I just say? What did I write here on this chart? You have that chart for yourself, and you're invited to read it in the future, but just set it down and listen for just a few minutes because I want to tell a story. It's the days after the death of Jesus, death and resurrection of Jesus, the early church, the New Testament church is starting to form. Pentecost has occurred and the church has been born and the apostles are guiding the church in its growth and formation and expansion. And preachers are being sent out to preach about the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And they needed material to preach from. They needed a collection of the sayings of Jesus. True, the disciples, the apostles, and those who followed along with them, followed Jesus with them, knew what Jesus had preached, knew what Jesus had taught, knew what Jesus had said, and they didn't really need a collection of his sayings. But there were many new Christians who came along who had never met Jesus, who might have seen Jesus once, but only heard him preach a little bit, or maybe only saw him in a negative light, i.e. at the trial, and never actually had a chance to hear him preach at all. People who had heard about Jesus, 
but not experience the power of His words and His teachings. And while the death and resurrection of Jesus is the focal point of the Christian faith, the focal point of the gospel message is His death on the cross for our sins and His resurrection for our eternity. Nevertheless, His teachings, what He had to teach us about life here, about what it means to be a follower of God, what it means to truly be a member of the covenant community, what it truly means to be a Christian. All that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the many parables He taught which teach us about the kingdom of God, which teach us about sanctification and what the sanctified life looks like, that teach us about the nature of grace and the operational nature of faith. All of the many teachings of Jesus, which then get incorporated into the writings of Paul and serve as the theological and ethical foundation for the entirety of the gospel message and the entirety of the call that we have to live in faith, empowered by God's grace, and to experience preventing, justifying, sanctifying, and perfecting grace. All of this content, this material that Jesus taught in his ministry here on earth, in which he revealed to us uh, a proper interpretation of both the Old Testament as well as an application of the Christian message in the New Testament for us today, all of this material that we have from the teaching of Jesus needed to be communicated in a way that was coherent, that was useful, that could be communicated on to others. And while word of mouth worked great for those who had been present, what about those who were not and yet who were called to preach? Now, at first this wasn't, wouldn't have been a problem, but as a few years moved on, it would have become a problem. And hence, it became in, uh, important for one of the disciples, specifically one of the disciples who had been there for the entire or almost the entire ministry of Jesus, to put down onto papyrus what Jesus actually said. Jesus died and was raised from the dead in about 30 or 33 AD or somewhere in that period. By about 35 to 40 AD, it seems pretty clear that somebody had written down in Aramaic a collection of the words of Jesus. A collection of the words of Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah. It was written in Aramaic. It had a basic form and structure. A collection. Simply, Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. A good example of this can be found in the Sermon on the Mount, where you have teaching after teaching after teaching after teaching of Jesus with very little commentary very little narrative simply the teachings of Jesus Jesus said Jesus said Jesus said Jesus said this Aramaic book which I am calling here and have written on the board as AQ Aramaic Q 
two Aramaic sayings source or Aramaic source, what we have is a collection of the sayings of Jesus. It was a substantially complete volume, perhaps a useful little volume, about half to uh, roughly half the size of Mark, of a collection of Jesus' sayings. All right? This was intact by no later than 40 A.D. All right? Jesus died 33, seven years later. The Aramaic Q, the Aramaic saying source, the Aramaic words of the Master, words of Jesus has been collected. All right? Bishop Papias tells us in 125 A.D., less than a century later, he writes that this collection was made by Matthew. And if you think about it, he's the perfect one to do it. He's the oldest of the disciples, and he was present for the vast majority, if not all, of Jesus' ministry. And he certainly would have heard the vast majority of the preaching of Jesus, and he probably heard it many, many times. That was by 40. Because of how Paul writes in his letters to the Corinthians and his letters to the Romans and his letters to the Galatians and the letters to the Thessalonians and the letters to the Colossians, where he periodically makes... Um, interesting references which appear to reflect the teachings of Jesus as found in Q, and yet reflects upon them in a way that looks like he hasn't translated it, but it has already been translated. Most scholars believe, and I think this is correct, that by 50 A.D., Greek Q has been translated somewhat has translated Aramaic Q, the Aramaic collection of the words of Jesus, into Greek. All right. This would have been important by the early 50s AD as the ministry to the Gentiles has begun in earnest, but also important for preaching the gospel to Jews outside of Palestine, to Jews who are part of Hellenistic Judaism, Jews who speak Greek as their native tongue, Jews who, while they may understand Aramaic and Hebrew to a degree, they speak Greek on a regular basis. And that would have been true for many Jews, indeed all Jews outside of Palestine would have been fluent or substantially fluent in Greek, and to preach the gospel outside of Palestine to Jews who were in the Hellenistic world, having a collection of Jesus' sayings in Greek would have been very helpful, which is probably the original reason why a translation was executed. However, this translation would have also been extremely helpful and extremely important for those who were Greek speakers from the Gentile world. 
i.e. most Gentiles in the eastern portion of the empire who would have been fluent in Greek. For them to hear about the teachings of Jesus, for them to actually hear what Jesus said or read what Jesus said, they really needed to have a collection of Jesus' sayings in Greek. Somebody at some point in time executed this translation. As to who that was, there is no agreement. There is indeed great speculation. It may have been some unknown uh, Christian or Christians. It may have happened several times, and perhaps there are several versions of Greek Q running around. Or it may have happened one time and was authorized by the early church. We don't know. We truly don't know who the translator might have been. It could easily have been Matthew himself. He would have still been alive in 50. He would have been an old man by then. Surely he was older than Jesus. He was the oldest of the disciples, so certainly while he was still alive, he might very well have had the capacity to translate what he had written in Aramaic into Greek. That may be the case. It might have been Matthew, or it could have been somebody else. We don't know. But somebody translated the Aramaic Q into Greek, producing the Greek Q, or GQ, is what I'm calling it here. That was done by 50. We know it was done by 50 because Paul seems to reference it in his letters, which were written in the 50s. So for him to have a copy of Greek Q, it really and truly needed to be out by about 50. It could have been earlier, like 48. It might have been 51 or 52, but not much later than that because then Paul is quoting it in the letter to the Corinthians. So, we have AQ, Aramaic Q, the collection of the words of Jesus written by Matthew in about 40 AD at the latest. And then the Greek Q, GQ, translated into Greek in about 50 AD. That's the Logi of Yeshua, but it's not a gospel. It's not even close to a gospel. It's a saying source. It's a collection of Jesus' teachings, not a gospel. It doesn't tell us what Jesus did. It doesn't give us very many, if any, healing stories. It might give us one healing story. It doesn't tell us about his birth. It doesn't tell us about his death. There's nothing in it about the cross. There's nothing in it about the resurrection. There is nothing in it about the ascension. There is very little, if any, in it about the apostles themselves. It is just the teachings of Jesus. It is not a gospel. And this coordinates well with what Papias said when he said that Matthew wrote down the sayings of Jesus in Aramaic. The logi, logiai. Logos is word, the logiai, the plural, the words of the master in Aramaic, not in Greek. So it got written down in Aramaic by Matthew, according to Papias, and then translated into Greek. And that's where we stood in the 50s, and on into the 60s. Now, you might ask yourself, what then happened in the 60s AD? What 
happened in the 60s AD which caused there to be a need for something more than just a collection of the sayings. If you think very carefully about it, you'll realize the death of the apostles. Some of the apostles have already died. Others start dying, many of them by means of, all of them but John, who doesn't die until much later, by means of persecution. But there's one death, one critical death, one very important death, that starts the Gospels off. And that's the death of Peter. In the mid-60s A.D. in Rome. The death of Peter in the mid-60s A.D. sparks the need for more than just a saying source. The last of the apostles, the greatest of the apostles, start dying off, start being killed. And someone needs to take and write down their teachings about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that they will not be lost. Now you remember... Early on, the church believed that Jesus was coming next Tuesday. I say that frequently. That was true for Paul. That was true for all the other apostles as well. Hence, since you're preaching, and this Q document, this collection of Jesus' sayings document, is important to help with preaching about Jesus, that's fine. But, you know, you're not going to die before Jesus returns, so you don't really need to write down all that you know. But when the chief of those apostles... The one who received the keys to the kingdom, Peter, the rock, Simon Petros, or Kepha, as he was known in Aramaic, dies. There's a problem. He had preached about the life and teachings of Jesus. He may very well have used Q, although he probably didn't need it nearly as much as others. I mean, why reinvent the wheel, however? If you have it in front of you, you use it. It helps to have those references. I don't know anybody who doesn't use written references to help them, even back then. A good question as to whether or not Peter could read and write. He probably read and wrote a little bit. However, uh, he didn't write a whole lot. And if he did, he used, when he did write, as in the letters of Peter, he dictated them. So, as most people did, by the way, that's nothing against Peter, and he probably was literate, but not a great writer. But he could dictate. He taught about the life and teachings of Jesus. He taught about his ministry, his death and resurrection. Peter's primary focus, as we can see in the Acts of the Apostles, in his preaching, was to apply the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to theologically to the people of God. He did that in the Acts of the Apostles, drawing from the Old Testament to illustrate what Jesus did and why. It makes perfect sense that Peter's the focus of Peter's preaching, therefore, would be on the ministry of Jesus, what he did, his death and resurrection, and what that means for us. When he died that needed to be recorded. 
And in his ministry, and especially towards the end, he was accompanied by a fellow who had accompanied Paul at one point early on, a fellow by the name of John Mark. And John Mark was the son of the woman who uh, hosted the Last Supper in the upper room. That was his house. He's also the fella in Mark's Gospel who loses his underwear in the, in the uh, garden when Jesus is arrested and he runs off. And it's only in Mark's Gospel that that event is recounted or told. That actually is, although it's not identified as such, because it only occurs in Mark's Gospel, it's Mark's way of signing that Gospel that was him. Well, John Mark was uh, at first a follower of Paul, but he didn't have the fortitude that Paul needed in his disciples. And so he handed uh, John Mark off, and John Mark eventually ended up traveling with Peter, probably assisting Peter in his evangelistic mission, and taking down the words of Peter. And Papias tells us that is exactly what John Mark did he took down the preaching of Peter and formulated it either just before or after, probably after the death of Peter, he wrote his gospel. So, just after the death of Peter, probably, it could have been before, but more likely after the death of Peter in about 64 AD, Mark wrote down his gospel. And I want to date this 64, 65 A.D. Mark's Gospel is brief. It simply is the facts, just the facts, ma'am. It's like Sergeant Friday. He's interested in what Jesus did, who Jesus healed, the kind of ministry he had, not so much the content of the sermons as the content of the character and its meaning, and then especially the death and resurrection of Jesus. Peter's preaching probably was reflected in that. Mark wrote it down as best he could, wrote down what Peter taught about the life and ministry of Jesus. Begins with... Jesus' baptism at the hands of John the Baptist and ends with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, Peter died. Mark wrote this down probably right after Peter's death. Can't be much later than about 65 AD because while there are a few references in it to some questions about the temple, it seems pretty clear if you read Mark, at least it seems pretty clear to me when I read Mark, that Mark's Gospel does not seem to reflect a post-temple environment. Indeed, it seems pretty clear to me that Mark's Gospel assumes that the temple is still present. Yet, that it is clear that there are problems, severe problems in the church, severe problems in Judaism. The temple is threatened. The Jewish sacrificial system is threatened. And that's exactly what was going on towards the end of the 60s. And then in 70 AD, if you remember, the Romans surrounded, attacked Jerusalem, took Jerusalem, and destroyed the second temple, the temple that Jesus had been in. Mark's Gospel shows no awareness that this has happened yet. I don't think it does. Hence, it can't be any later than 70. 
and if it was written on the death of Peter because of Peter's death, which would have been the occasion for Mark writing it down, then it can't be any earlier than 64. So I give him 64 to 65 to write it down. All right? That's Mark's Gospel. Remember, we've got Greek Q floating over here. The saying source of Jesus' words collected by Matthew and Aramaic and translated into Greek. It's not found in Mark. Mark does not use Matthew's saying source. Mark may know it. In fact, there's a hint in at least one place in his gospel that he is aware of this, but he does not have it in front of him. He does not incorporate it into his gospel. Mark is not, does not reflect the knowledge or presence of Q, of the saying source. All right? So it's kind of hanging out there on the side. He's written this in about 64, 65. Following writing this, the Romans take Jerusalem. The Christians, the Jewish Christians who had lived in Jerusalem, are forced to flee Jerusalem. They go to Antioch. They go to Damascus. They go to other areas to the north outside of Israel and, and Judea. They, outside of Palestine, they escape to live uh, with diaspora Judaism. They escape especially to Damascus as well as to Antioch and live there. And those cities became heavily Jewish Christian in character following the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Matthew appears to have been evacuated in this period of time as well, and he is living now outside of Judea in Antioch or Damascus, and he comes across a copy of Mark's Gospel. He comes across a copy of the teachings of Peter about the life and ministry of Jesus. He knows that Peter is dead. He's gotten word about the death of Peter. And he sees this collection written by John Mark. He knows that this is a good history of the life and ministry of Jesus. But it's lacking. It's lacking that which he has already written in his collection of the sayings of Jesus. While the sayings of Jesus, which he had written in Aramaic and now has translated into Greek, is lacking the framework, the chronology and framework of the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Matthew, a very old man now in about 70 A.D., 75 A.D. to 80 A.D., somewhere in that decade of the 70s, reads Mark's Gospel recognizes in it an excellent outline for the life and ministry of Jesus, but lacking the teachings of Jesus, and decides to fill it in. And that is exactly what he does, and that is exactly what we have today in the canonical gospel of Matthew. He takes Mark's gospel and he inserts into it 
the teachings, the sayings, the logiae, the words of Jesus, and produces the canonical gospel of Matthew. If you look on my chart, you'll see I've given it the date of 75 to 80 AD. I would place it no later than 80 and probably 75 as a good solid date. All right. He uses Mark as his outline. Why reinvent the wheel? Mark has presented the chronology of the life and ministry of Jesus based on the teachings of Peter. Matthew, who was there just like Peter was, recognizes it as a good, solid, accurate history of the life and ministry of Jesus. Why reinvent the wheel? But it's lacking the teachings which he has written down, and so he inserts them into the framework that Mark provides and creates the Gospel of Matthew. Now that's not all of it, because not only does the Gospel of Matthew contain the Gospel of Mark and the saying source, but a lot is missing. I mean, if you put the saying source of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark based on the teachings of Peter together, what do you get? You get the ministry of Jesus from his baptism to his death and resurrection. You don't get anything after the resurrection of Jesus to speak of, and you don't get anything before. No birth, no growing up, just baptism and ministry, death and resurrection. So there's some things that need to be added. Matthew knows this. Matthew also know, knew in his life James the brother of the Lord. James the brother of the Lord would, in my opinion, was the stepbrother of Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter at, from Joseph's earlier marriage. Old church tradition says that Matthew uh, says that Joseph was married prior to marrying Mary, and he was in fact a middle-aged man with children from an earlier marriage, possibly as old as teenagers, but not much older than that. James would have been the brother of the Lord, older than Jesus, but a brother of the Lord by courtesy only due to Joseph's marriage to Mary. Mary didn't give birth to James, the brother of the Lord, didn't give birth probably to Jude, the brother of the Lord, and according to church tradition, definitely didn't. But instead, that was he, they were, James and Jude, were the sons of Joseph from Joseph's earlier marriage, hence step-brothers of Jesus, not even half-brothers, step-brothers of Jesus. And James, the brother of the Lord, being older, possibly a young boy, maybe five to ten years old, possibly as old as twelve. Uh, James, the brother of the Lord, knew all of the circumstances surrounding the betrothal of Joseph to Mary, the appearance of Gabriel unto Joseph, the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus, and the fleeing uh, to Egypt, all those details, he would have known because he was there. And he told them to Matthew. 
He knew Matthew. Matthew was part of the Jerusalem church where James was bishop, head of the Jerusalem church. So obviously Matthew filled in James on the life and teachings of Jesus. And James filled in Matthew on the birth stories, what happened before he met Jesus. And it's a fairly bare bones, but what's necessary is there. And so he fills in pre-baptism material, i.e. the birth narratives, and thus and such. And then the post-resurrection material. Plus, because he was present at the trial and at the death and resurrection of Jesus, he would have been there when the announcement was made by Mary Magdalene at least, he felt free to adjust some details in Mark's Gospel to reflect more his memory of the events instead of Mark's attempt to write down what Peter had taught. Hence you have the slight differences between Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel explained by Matthew and I witness to the events, making adjustments to it as he goes along. He still follows Mark's basic outline, but he feels free since he was there to recount it a little more precisely than Mark did. So we have the pre-baptism material, which came from James, the post-resurrection material, and indeed the trial and crucifixion and resurrection material, uh, additives and adjustments made by Matthew to Mark's material plus the post-resurrection material coming from Matthew's own experience. So that's what we have. That's how Ma Matthew's Gospel came about. The occasion for writing it would have been the discovery of Mark's Gospel upon arriving outside of Israel, outside of Judea, following the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew's Gospel does seem to contain references that hint at a knowledge of the destruction of the temple. Jesus spoke about it ahead of time. In Matthew's Gospel, it seems pretty clear that it has come to pass. They have been forced to flee Jerusalem, just as Jesus said they would, in order to survive, and that's exactly what they did. So, that seems to be indicated within the confines of Matthew's Gospel. Hence, it does come after 70 but not long after 70. 75 to 80, possibly no earlier than 75, and probably no later than 80. I tend to peg it to 75 almost immediately, or less than a half decade after leaving Jerusalem. Luke's Gospel. Luke is in a more difficult situation than Matthew because Luke wasn't there. Luke was not an eyewitness to Jesus. He is the Syrian-born physician, friend of Paul, and a scholar in his own right. Luke has a copy of Mark's Gospel. He also has a copy of the sayings source. Luke moved around in Jewish, Christian, as well as Gentile Christian communities being from Syria, from possibly Damascus itself, 
if Matthew had retreated to Damascus, it's possible that Matthew had brought his saying source with him, or it may have already been there, and Luke may have been aware of it for quite a while. And then he comes across Peter's account of the life and ministry of Jesus as contained in Mark, and he gets a brilliant stroke, independent, however, of Matthew. You see, Luke lived somewhere, by this time, somewhere in Asia Minor, probably in the area of Ephesus. And he found it necessary to decide to teach about the life and ministry of Jesus, to teach about the church, to communicate to Theophilus uh, who this Jesus was, what this Jesus taught. But why reinvent the wheel? He had Peter's account of the chronology of the life of Jesus, through Mark, and he has the teachings of Jesus as written down by Matthew and Q. And so sometime, and if you look at the chart I gave you, I say between 80 and 85, I'll peg that earlier, peg that to 80. In about 80 AD, somewhere about 80 AD, Luke takes Mark and takes Greek Q and writes down his gospel doing essentially what Matthew did, all right? but independently of Matthew. He wasn't there, so he's doing it based upon what he has been told and his research and scholarship. And he tells us that that's exactly what he did, that he wrote as he did based on the scholarship and the research that he has done. Other people have written, now I am going to write. Other people have written, he's probably talking about Mark, he's probably talking about Q. He's probably not talking about Matthew. So now he is doing what Matthew did. He sees the need to do it. Having the two, Mark and Q, together, he says it's really powerful if you put them together, so he does. His research, however, is with different people. Matthew being a Jewish Christian. Matthew being friends with James, the brother of the Lord, living in Jerusalem for many years. He is aware of the stories from the perspective of Joseph, because Joseph and his sons, uh, that their version of the story would have come to him from James. Luke, doing his research, speaks to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Mary gives her version of the birth narratives. So Mary and the birth narratives all right. Mary becomes Luke's source for the birth narratives of Jesus. Birth narratives, stories of Jesus. The pre-birth material. Everything in Luke's gospel comes from Mary's perspective. Actually, from Mary's family's perspective. From Elizabeth's family and from her own family's perspective. It's told from her side. Luke talked to her, got that information, and produced the pre-baptism material that way. He then used Mark as his outline for baptism to death and resurrection. He used Q for his material about the teachings of Jesus. And he filled in the post-resurrection material by talking 
to a whole bunch of disciples. And you can see that because Luke's Gospel reflects more a broader range of people's experiences, not just a small, narrow group, not just one person's experience and observation, but a bunch of people's experiences and observations. And that, of course, continues on to the Acts of the Apostles, which we're not going to cover today, but which continue that history based upon the broad perspective of many people. All right? So, Luke does what Matthew does, but with different resources. Okay? Now, some... And, and this is seen reflected in the chart that I gave you. All right? Now, some corroborating evidence of this. Matthew was present. Luke was not. Matthew wrote down the Q materials. Luke did not. Hence, Matthew seems to have had the freedom that Luke did not have in writing down and altering and adjusting the material in the Q source and even in Mark's Gospel. Hence, Matthew is freer to augment, to adjust, to amplify and interpret the teachings of Jesus as found in Q. Hence, you get things from the Sermon on the Mount like, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay? Whereas in Luke, since you have someone who did not write Q and someone who was not present at the event, feels obligated to keep it as close to the original in front of him as he has, hence he writes down, Blessed are the poor. He doesn't interpret it. He doesn't try to apply it. He simply writes it down. Likewise, Matthew can remember that many of these teachings happened in groups and probably actually remembers hearing them many different times, but one specific time would have been a sermon that Jesus gave on a hill. And hence he situates a chunk of the teachings that we call the Sermon on the Mount in one location. Luke, who wasn't there, was aware that the teachings in the saying source reflected all of Jesus' teachings across a long period of time, two to three years, and hence he decides to disperse those teachings more evenly throughout his gospel. Hence, Matthew, and if you look at the second chart I gave you, which puts Q at the top and the middle, Mark underneath it, and then Matthew and Luke on either side with lines drawn from, with, the, with the shaded material for Mark, which is seen reflected both in Matthew and Luke, and then the, verti uh, the uh, vertical lines, no, excuse me, the diagonal lines reflecting Q interspaced within it. And then, of course, some other stuff that's unique to Matthew and unique to Luke also dispersed throughout it. But you see, Q is found in both. In Matthew, it's in glumps, larger collections, larger segments. Matthew, being there, knew when many of these things were said, could remember when they were said, and grouped them together. That doesn't mean that other things weren't said at other times, as Luke reflects. It just means that Matthew remembers many of these things happening at specific times, and so he filled them in to Mark's outline accordingly. Likewise, Luke, or similarly, Luke places the teachings of Jesus throughout his gospel but he does so dispersed more evenly throughout it. 
utilized more evenly throughout the gospel. Reflecting the fact that he wasn't there. And also reflecting the fact that he knew that Jesus' ministry took place over a long period of time, as I already said. Notice something about this chart. Firstly, for the most part, the sayings of Jesus from Q, from the saying source that Matthew originally wrote, are found in nearly the same order in both Gospels. Remember, we do not have a copy of Q. It's been reconstructed based upon Matthew and based upon Luke. And indeed, in a comparison and contrasting between Matthew and Luke, those things in Matthew and Luke that are identical are very similar, but are not found in Mark comprise Q. And interestingly enough, with the few exceptions that are reflected in this chart, with a few exceptions, Matthew and Luke contain all of the teachings of Jesus in roughly the same order. They are dispersed a little differently, but they occur in roughly the same order. That's an indicator that both Matthew and Luke are quoting from a document, like the Greek Q. All right? That's an indicator. We don't have a copy of it, but we can reconstruct it based upon Matthew and Luke, what they say that is in common but not found in Mark. That's Q. And they both used it pretty much completely. Okay? Luke was not as free to adjust, so he didn't. And since he wasn't there, he dispersed them more evenly. Matthew, who was there, felt free to adjust and amplify and interpret. And since he was there, he knew how they were best grouped together. So we have indicators and explanations here for why there are differences and what those similarities are between the two Gospels. They both use Mark in pretty much the same order. They make very few changes. Luke makes fewer changes. Matthew makes a few. But for the most part, Mark's order is adopted entirely by both Matthew and Luke. And then the same order in Q is pretty much maintained in distributing it throughout the Gospel. So, we have here a pretty good illustration. Pretty good illustration of how Matthew, Mark, and Luke came about. Mark was written first based on the teachings of Peter. Matthew was written based on Peter's teachings in Mark and Matthew's own writing down of the sayings of Jesus from about 20 to 30 years earlier. Luke was written independent of Matthew, but the same way, with Mark as his basic outline for the life of Jesus and with Matthew's uh, body of the sayings of Jesus in the Greek version of Q dispersed throughout his gospel. Plus, each did their own research to fill in the material pre-baptism and to flesh out the material post-resurrection. They included either their own information, as in Matthew's case, or Luke researched talking to a whole bunch of people. All right. So here we have a basic introduction to the synoptic Gospels. So now we have an understanding of why we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three separate Gospels, why Matthew and Luke are similar to each other, yet different, and why Mark is so much shorter and so much more brief. But 
What about John? What about John's Gospel? John's Gospel is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's Gospel tells the story of Jesus in a different way. John's Gospel contains a different uh, schema or a different method of teaching that Jesus seemed to prefer. In the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, teachings of Jesus based upon Q seem to be entirely or mostly parabolic, i.e. Jesus taught in the form of parables. All right? In John's Gospel, we find the teachings of Jesus as dialogues, discussions. Dialogues are harder to remember. Dialogues can often flow from parables to explain them and expound upon them. And you can identify within John what the parables that were the original source of the teaching were and see how the dialogue discussion of the meaning of the parable results in what we have in John. But that's discussion for a later time. John is completely different from the synoptics. It's not based upon Mark. It's not based upon Q. It's probable that John knew Mark well, he knew Mark, John Mark, but he, he, it's possible, probable, that he actually read Mark's Gospel. And it seems to be pretty clear that he was aware of Q. However, having been present in the life and ministry, the teachings of Jesus, he felt as though he needed to write down his version of the Gospels. Hence, he wrote in distinction from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's Gospel has some interesting differences. For example, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus cleanses the temple of the money changers at the beginning of his ministry in Jerusalem, at the end of his Gospel, at the end of the story. John places that same event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Whoops. Now, some people have tried to reconcile by saying it happened both times. I'm sorry, I disagree. I think that chronologically speaking, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are correct. In terms of chronology, it happened towards the end of Jesus' ministry. But his cleansing the temple of the money changers is really a penultimate moment in his ministry. A moment where the character of his ministry was revealed. His zeal for righteousness, his perfection, his, his sinless character being applied in response to the sin of the money changers and the Jewish leadership. And it was really his cleansing of the temple that sealed his doom and resulted in his arrest, in his conviction, and in his crucifixion. It was the event that resulted in the end. And I think it's appropriate that John begins Jesus' ministry with what Matthew, Mark, and Luke says ended it. Because in so doing, John sets a thematic tone throughout his gospel. John's Gospel is not as interested in time 
as Matthew, Mark, and Luke are. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are chronological, chronological gospels. They tell what Jesus did and when he did it and how it led to his death and eventual resurrection. John is more interested in the theological interpretation of the events, in their theological application, and less interested in this happened, then that happened, then this other event happened. Less interested in the parables and more interested in the dialogue, the interpretation of those parables. More interested in the theological interpretation, post-resurrection reflections of the church and of the Johannine community, the church that John formed and led it reflects an understand John's gospel reflects an understanding and interpretation of the life and ministry of Jesus post resurrection in a way that while it's present in the synoptic gospels is not nearly as controlling John's gospel is theological the synoptic gospels are chronological that doesn't mean that they don't have theology they do it doesn't mean that John's gospel doesn't have chronology. It does. What's important is the guiding factor, theology. And John begins, the gospel depicts the cleansing of the temple first to set the theological tone and scope of the entire gospel. So you can look at the ministry of Jesus, if you were to use modern storytelling and modern literary devices in John's Gospel, you would have the entire ministry of Jesus post-cleansing of the temple. It's a flashback explaining how we got to that point of the cleansing of the temple, which he depicts in the very beginning of, his, of Jesus' ministry, but in fact occurred at the end. So he uses a literary device, which later became known as flashback, and then explains it with the content of his gospel. John's gospel is interesting in that there, there are many connections between John's gospel and the synoptics, but there are connections in terms of the content, in terms of the character of Jesus, in terms of the events that actually occurred, not so much literary context between Mark and John, or Matthew and John, or Luke and John, or even Q and John but rather they are theological, ethical contacts between the events that all of those reference and John. Okay? So what we have in John's Gospel reflects the work of one man, not using many sources. He may be using a few sources. The sources he's using, I tend to believe, are more the memory of the community and the interpretation of the Holy Spirit and less so much documents and historical research as with Luke or memory as with Matthew. John's Gospel is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke and that difference stems from the importance that the author places upon chronology and on theology. Matthew, it's theology. Matthew, oh, excuse me, John, it's theology. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's chronology. Now, John's Gospel would have been written towards the end of John's life, probably sometime around, ooh, this is a hard one to uh, estimate, 
it was before he was sent off to Patmos, before the writing of the, of the Apocalypse, which bears his name, it, it would have to have been sometime between 85 and 95 AD. I would project it closer towards the end of the 80s and no later than 90. So I'll peg it between 88 and 90 AD. So John's Gospel was written about 90 AD. John was the longest lived of all the apostles. He almost survived the century. He lived a very long time and then finally died and his gospel was given a last edit and published. The earliest fragments we have of John's gospel come from about 100 to 125. So only 25 to 35 years at most after the writing down of the gospel we have our first fragments. That's amazing to me. How did we get these four Gospels into our canon, into our New Testament? That's a critical question. That's a very good question. And it's what we're going to close with tonight. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in our Gospels due to politics. Not just politics, however. I believe that God utilized human debate, human opinion, human argument, and human politics to give us the four Gospels that we need to understand and articulate the ministry, life, and meaning of Jesus. The Gospel of Jesus. How did it happen? Well, you got to realize that the early church was not a great big cohesive unit like we have today in the Roman Catholic Church. Indeed, it's more like the entirety of Christendom with many different factions and groups. Roman Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, you name it, uh, we've got it. Uh, in the ancient world, the church was broken up into regions. You had Rome, you had Greece, and Ephesus, Asia Minor, you had Antioch, and you had Alexandria, Egypt. This would have been essentially the four great seas, uh, seats, uh, centers of Christianity in 150 A.D. Before 150 A.D., before 125 A.D., the Gospels were independent of each other. We had Rome with their favorite Gospel, Mark. We had Greece and Ephesus with their favorite Gospel, Luke. They also liked John, but especially Luke. So I want to put John down here, but in parentheses, and we're going to star Luke. They had Antioch. Antioch, its favorite gospel, 
was Matthew and Alexandria, Egypt, and their favorite gospel was John and also Mark. As John was a favorite of some in Greece and Ephesus, and John had been the bishop of Ephesus at one time, Luke was really the favorite there. So also, John is really the favorite of the church in Alexandria, but Mark is liked as well. And that's because there are connections between Mark and Egypt, that's where Mark died, and there are connections between John and Ephesus, that's where John was bishop. The Jehannine community in Alexandria, or the church in Alexandria, was strong, however, in Jehannine Christianity, the Christian movement that surrounded the disciple, John, the beloved disciple. And they moved to Egypt and really set up shop in Egypt and Alexandria. And it was, Alexandria was one of the most important centers of Christianity in the ancient world. And indeed, some would say the most important, probably even in rival to Rome. And if you read church history, you see that. Rome and Alexandria and Antioch kind of went around and around and around and around and around in arguments and fights with each other and um, vied for power in the early years. By 150 AD, however, they had had to make agreement particularly to help in publication of New Testaments, they had had to agree on what to do about the Gospels. There was an alternative to four, and that was Tatians. Tatians diatessaron, in which Tatian took and harmonized together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Patience diatessaron was very important. And indeed, even though it fell out of use and was declared heretical, some of the translation choices from Greek into Syriac are reflected in later copies of the Syriac New Testament in various... Uh, various editions of the Syriac New Testament, of which there are several. But apart from Tatian's Diatessaron, you have four independent Gospels, one each backed by a branch of the church. Rome said, well, we can have a New Testament, but it has to have Mark. Ephesus said, we can have a New Testament, but it has to have Luke. And we wouldn't mind John being in there as well. Antioch says we can have a New Testament, but it has to have Matthew. Alexandria said we can have a New Testament, but it has to have John. And we wouldn't mind Mark as well. Do you see what happened? Because of human politics in demanding their favorite gospel, 
the gospel that was in circulation in their church for over a century, or about a century, about 80 years, because of their unwillingness to compromise, they said, we will have all four and have a four-fold now, quite frankly, some New Testament, uh, so, excuse me, quite frankly, some historians, some church fathers said we have a fourfold canon because there are four ends of the earth and there are four winds and there are four spirits. Poppycock. They're making that up. The true reason why the canon has four gospels is because there were four regions of the church and each had its own favorite gospel and they refuse to go along with the whole unless you had theirs in it. Hence, you get four Gospels and the fourfold canon. All right. That's how we get our four Gospels. That's how Matthew, Mark, and Luke came about. It's why they are different from John. And we have four of them because the four regions of the church couldn't get along. Copyright by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. Visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.